Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest, a returning guest. His name is Mike Rothmiller, and we talked back in October about his book, Bombshell, The Night Bobby Kennedy Killed Marilyn Monroe, an excellent book. And today we're going to talk about a two-part series of books that he's written. Title of, title of it is Secrets, Lies, and Deception, Top Secret Presidential Telephone Transcripts, Top Secret Presidential Letters, Top Secret Documents, and Other Amazing Pieces of History. And then there's a follow-up that says, same title, Secrets and Lies, Deception 2, and Other Amazing Pieces of History. So you can see those both are available on Amazon. And Mike Rothmiller enjoyed a distinguished career in law enforcement, working across U.S. federal and state agencies and with American and international intelligence services. He served for 10 years with the Los Angeles Police Department, including five years as a deep undercover detective with the Organized Crime Intelligence Division, or OCID. He's a regular commenter on law enforcement and worldwide intelligence matters across America and throughout the world. He is a New York Times bestselling author of 23 nonfiction books, and some of his other titles are L.A. Secret Police Inside the LAPD Elite Spy Network, 2014. Uh, he put out another one in 2021, True Crime Chronicles, Volume 1 and 2, Serial Killers, Outlaws, and Justice, and then Serial Killer, Dr. H.H. H. Holmes Speaks. He tells his story from a prison cell. That's also this year. And Cayman, Snakes, and Lightning, Defying Death in the Amazon. And I interviewed a co-author of Bombshell, Stephen War, uh, Douglas Thompson, who discussed with me the book titled Stephen Ward's Scapegoat, which is about the Profumo affair. So you can go back and uh, you can go back and check that out on, on my interviews on William Ramsey Investigates. But again, today we're going to talk about this. Really, it's very well researched. It's over 500 pages, documents and stuff that you can read along in this book, Secret Lies and Deception, and it just is really interesting. So you can see different facets of different historical events in this book. Um, he has in his in intro, I think it's a very telling uh, line from Abraham Lincoln, which is, quote, America will never be destroyed from the outside. If we falter and lose our freedoms, it will be because we destroyed ourselves. So I think that's very telling. And in his dedication, he gives his dedication to people who, um, have served in the United States Armed Forces and also uh, some of these unfortunate people who died in the Libya fiasco. So um, each one of these documents kind of has an intro from Mike. So you can have like, see kind of the intro kind of paragraphs that introduces some of these documents. And uh, so you can kind of just see all this, all this great research that covers kind of from the beginning of the United States to subjects such as the CIA's top alleged assassins, FBI's black bag jobs, um, was President Lincoln gay, and all these kind of documents that are written between people. And like Ulysses S. Grant, he, he writes in his autobiography about the Mexican War as a conspiracy, about Nazi gold hordes, um, information about Kennedy, some secret information about Kennedy, uh, that's very interesting. Stories about Lyndon Baines Johnson and all the way up to the, the present Israel destroying Iraq's nuclear reactor and other nuclear weapons. Mike has kind of dropped out, so I'm kind of going it alone. But uh, yeah, so for example, here's one that was the first printed item in England, a scam. It goes all the way back to 1476. 
So it was a, it was made by William Caxton, introduced printing into England. And then he goes right into the rebellion of the American colonies begins and the King takes action in 1775. But uh, some of the ones that I had listed that I wanted him to talk about was, okay, here we go. All right, he's back. All right. I did a long, long intro, Mike, but welcome to the show. Thanks for uh, coming back on. Appreciate it. I don't know why it cut out, but it did. That's all right. Maybe these secrets, lies, and deceptions are not, people do not want this revealed. So for people who didn't hear our earlier conversation about Bombshell, can you give us an update on Bombshell and also about your research that led to this very excellently researched series of two books? Sure. Well, Bombshell uh, is about the death of Marilyn Monroe, about the killing of her. And uh, it came out in July, and it's still number one in the UK, the United Kingdom. It's still in the top uh, five within the United States within its category. And in the English-speaking world, it's a bestseller. So uh, it's doing very well. This past week, uh, the audio rights have been sold in the United States and the United Kingdom. And uh, the production company which optioned the TV movie rights, they're moving forward uh, pretty rapidly. So everything's very positive. So Excellent. Congratulations. That's awesome. It's a really well-written book, too. So people should go get Bombshell, and they can listen to this interview. But what led you to write? Okay, he's back. You just dropped off again. <laughs> okay. So, okay, he's back. Oh, I don't know. Keeps now. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to keep going. Let's go. Oh, now he's going back. Okay, now he's off again. <laughs> anyway. Uh, never a dull moment, I guess. I don't know if something like one of your cables isn't attached or something. Okay, now he's off again. Okay. Um, yeah, so I think one of his books, H.H. H. Holmes, would be a really interesting one. That's one that Mike has written. People don't know who H.H. H. Holmes is. He was like a notorious serial killer who built his own house to, like, kill people. Anyway, Mike, as long as you're on, start from go from bombshell to secret lies and deception. Yeah, well, Secret Lies and Deception, uh, it took literally 20 years to acquire the documents in that book. Uh, the CIA, the NSA, and everybody else fought me all the way. Uh, but I did eventually get some very, very interesting documents, and they're so revealing and so explosive, I included the documents in the book so people can read them for themselves. But uh, one is that I have the list of official CIA assassins who back in the probably in the early 50s, but the 60s and 70s, uh, were carrying out assassinations for the CIA. And a lot of that came under uh, JFK's administration. I also have uh, Operation Condor, which somebody, some people may have heard about. And that's when a number of South American countries got together with their intelligence services, formed assassination squads, and they would go around the world killing people there president uh, didn't like. And one of those killings was a car bomb in Washington, D.C., where they killed two people. And uh, the entire document is in there, the FBI investigation, the synopsis of it. I did a really Uh, good interview about that. It was called The Ghost of Sheridan Circle. It was the only assassination done, I think, on American soil or something, or in D.C. Yeah, really interesting. And it was Allende's, I forgot what his name was, Allende's kind of foreign minister or something. Right, where he... You want to say he left there and he came to the U.S. and started speaking out against him. Uh, I also have the 100,000 Man Project, which most people have never heard of. And that was during the Vietnam War, where LBJ knew he had to 
garner more people through the draft to go to Vietnam. And so he and McNamara and a couple other people came up with the 100,000 man project. And what they did was they lowered the standards. And for instance, if a person could not read at say a fifth grade level before they were exempt from military service, but now they said, no, well, let's lower all the standards. They also lowered the standards regarding uh, mental issues and in some of the documents they refer to the people as idiots they are going to draft idiots so they knew it they they went through the south primarily looking at uh, african americans and lower educated whites and told them that if they joined the military and became an infantry guy in vietnam it would be a great career boost for them and so these guys went in great numbers to vietnam and most people, if you hear a shot, when I know I was in the military, police, if you hear a gunshot, you duck. They said a lot of these reports that these guys would hear a gunshot, they would stand up to see where it came from. And then they were taken out by a sniper. So they died in huge numbers compared to regular enlisted people and draftees. So that document is in there uh, discussing it. And that was kind of what made up people were notorious about the people involved in Vietnam is that they were from small towns in the South or Midwest. They were just not uh, from sophisticated, more educated families. So that right. ties into that. Yeah, so, right. So Jackson please... didn't want to do away with college deferments because that would have been a lot of his campaign contributors and so forth. And people who supported him also out of some Ivy League schools that are being drafted and sent to Vietnam. And that would not have gone well for him. Um, I also have in there, which is kind of ironic, the day that John F. Kennedy was assassinated, almost to the minute, there was a CIA agent delivering a poison pen to an assassin in France to kill Castro with. And the CIA document reads, says it was virtually at the very second Kennedy got shot, this poison pen was handed off. Uh, so I have that, have Operation Northwoods in the book, uh, the document, which is really pretty interesting because it was once again the Kennedy administration. They were looking at ways to invade Cuba. And it even got to the point of shooting down a U.S. aircraft, commercial airline, sinking a U.S. ship. And then that's an excuse to go in to Cuba. And fortunately, he turned that down because uh, it would have been you know, just horrific. Right. It would have been a disaster. And it's a very well-read, I mean, written, thorough document too, right? It is. It is. And the whole document's in there. Uh, have one's called Operation Ludnik. And what Ludnik was is after the Sputnik went up, the Russian Sputnik, the Soviets, they went on a tour of the U.S. Uh, showing some of the space capsules. And when it was in one town, the CIA, for a better term, they claimed is they kidnapped this uh satellite they took it out to a, a place they disassembled a lot of it they copied a lot of it they took some components out of it uh mainly wires and things like that and they remanufactured those then they returned the satellite to the truck that hauled it to the train station to go to the next city and wow. end it so that the soviets never realized they kidnapped this satellite took it apart and examined it but then the question comes in that did they not know, or was it a plant that the Soviets did? You know, sure. allowed them, said, okay, let's put it out there. They can steal it, examine it, but it's not really 
the internal mechanism that they're uh, actually using. So that document's in there. Uh, what is really pretty interesting is um, LBJ, Lyndon Johnson, I have his telephone transcripts in there that I obtained the day after Kennedy was assassinated. And in it, uh, he's, in other information, he's talking about forming some sort of commission to investigate it. And he decided then, within really 36 hours of the death, that if there's going to be an investigation, a commission, it has to say that Lee Harvey Oswald was a lone shooter, the Russians weren't involved, the Cubans weren't involved, the mob wasn't involved, and the CIA was not involved. And so even before the Warren Commission started, LBJ dictated the outcome of what it would be. So as a former detective, especially an intelligence detective, I looked at it and said, well, wait a minute, that's command influence. He already said how it must come out. So at this stage, you have to completely disregard the ultimate findings of the Warren Commission. Uh, because you just say, hey, he influenced it. Uh, they fudged here, they fudged there. Some things are accurate, but overall, you can't trust the Warren Commission report. Right, and you also go into the 9-11 Commission. Can you talk about your documents about 9-11? Yes, um, I obtained uh, Bill Clinton's telephone calls and uh, prior to 9-11, as I wanted to see what was really being discussed. And there's no doubt he knew what was going to happen. He may not have known the date and the actual target, but he knew what was going to happen. I have his telephone transcript where he is speaking to the prime minister of Pakistan. And he's talking about bin Laden. He's calling by name, Osama bin Laden, how he's been planning for a long time to really launch two major attacks against the United States. And Clinton is just terrified of it. You can just see it in his language that he used. He was very terrified of what was going to happen. And he asked the prime minister of Pakistan if he would send his intelligence people to Afghanistan to talk to the Taliban then about really taking out bin Laden. And that had already been done once because the prime minister said, well, you know, you realize what happened last time we did that. And uh, so he asked that it happens again. And the prime minister said, okay, um, I will tell them, my people will tell them that if they allow this to happen with bin Laden, that there will be basically worldwide condemnation of them and retaliation. And uh, looking at the dates, I gave those documents to several flag officers that I know um, who are now retired, but they were in high ranking positions in the military then, and one within the CIA. And first question was, how did you get these documents, you know, these transcripts? I said, well, that's not important, but I have them. And uh, then the next question, I said, well, what do you think they're talking about? And all of them, 100% said, oh, they're talking about 9-11 and the USS Cole attack. That obviously Clinton was well aware of this. Clinton had several, several opportunities to take out bin Laden. The CIA acknowledges that, but he wouldn't allow him to do it. And uh, so the question is, why didn't Clinton allow this to occur, take out bin Laden? But then if he did, would have if bin Laden was dead prior to 9-11, would still have occurred. Right, and then Sandy Berger didn't, yeah, didn't Sandy Berger get busted in the archives stuffing documents down his uh, shins or whatever? Into his yeah, socks? down his socks, and uh, yeah, his 
his right-hand man, Sandy Berger, went to the archives to get copies. Well, not copies. They're the originals of these very, very top secret sensitive documents about this. And while he was in there, this private room, he took a lot of them and there's no copies of those, shoved them into his socks and down his pants and he left, but he was caught. And so the question uh, to Sandy was, why did you do that? Who asked you to do that? Or who ordered you to do that? Uh, which hasn't been answered, and it won't be because Sandy passed away. But uh, but I don't think he really got a slap on the wrist for that, too. I don't even think. No, no, it was virtually nothing. Is you know, don't do it again. <laughs> yeah, bad, bad Sandy, bad. Right. Yeah. So yeah. So you have so many more documents on that too. I mean, and can you talk? You have a lot of stuff from the Kennedy era. Can you kind of talk about what was going on and the secret drug drug addiction of John Kennedy? Yes, um, JFK, which most people know that he had uh, severe back problems. He had a few surgeries. He was always in constant pain. And uh, what is interesting, I was able to get some of the documents out of the National Archives regarding his conversations. And one is he's asking, he's in the White House, he's asking the White House physician for a blue pill. Uh, if he sent that now and looking at all the blue pills from back then and from his injuries and speaking to some pharmacists and MDs, they said, oh, it's it's a narcotic uh, to kill his pain. And he wanted that and he was taking those. He was also getting a lot of injections into his back, uh, quite a few per day. And um, the, the question is, uh, how did it impact his cognitive ability, his thinking ability and how he viewed things? Because Quite frankly, look at he was loaded uh, yeah. on painkillers, and uh, people that I've seen, especially when I was caught, that were loaded on a lot of things, uh, they don't always make the correct decision. But I have to say, we we're lucky that the way things turned out, especially with the Bay of Pigs, because of his drug addiction. Uh, right, like that, that could be explained the kind of lassitude about the Bay of Pigs or what he did. He might have been drugged out. I mean, yeah, it's we, speculation, we, just right? we just don't know. And so it's really kind of shocking. And But a, a lot of people regarding the Kennedy administration, he really got us heavily into Vietnam. And in the book, I have a, a document from the CIA, and I believe it was 1947. They went into Vietnam, went all through it, and they concluded that if we ever went to war Vietnam, we could never win. Never happened. So the CIA in 47 recommended we never go in there. Uh, because we'll just lose. And then Truman sent some money in and some intelligence people, and it kept growing. Then when Kennedy came in, the reason he got so involved in Vietnam, and I I have some of the documents, but there are just many other ones I obtained, uh, where they're talking about him sending troops in, is because for power and and prestige of the president. They said they had to go in to maintain the prestige and power of the president. That's why we went into Vietnam. And not only did I see that one, I saw that in probably at least 20 other documents. Uh, and they were transcripts of actual conversations in the White House. And it was always, that was the reason for going into Vietnam. Right. It's, it's not a good reason. It's not a good rationale just to kind of uh, save face or look good. I mean, what a disaster. And then yeah, Johnson comes. Yeah. Total it, it's disaster. Horrible. Um, then other interesting documents in there. I have uh, 
the CIA when they launched their search for Noah's Ark. Which is, when you think about that, you think, really? Yes, and that involves senators, military leaders, some other people. They wanted Noah's Ark to find it, and the CIA launched the search for it. And then I came up uh, with some other documents that aren't the book, but they also started looking for, um, oh, the Spear of Destiny, the one that killed Christ. The Spear of Longinus, yeah, it's called the Spear of Longinus. Yeah, and they went for everything, every religious item that you can think of that dealt with power or influence, they were searching for. I don't think they ever found anything because I've never seen a document that said they had, but it's rather interesting that they um, launched the search in relatively recent years for Noah's Ark. All right, that's incredible. Did you, what, uh, was there any results from that? They just searched for it, right? They, they searched for it. They went back looking at uh, satellite imaging. Uh, they directed a satellite over Mount Ararat in Turkey and other locations they, they came up with where it might, they thought it would be located. And uh, they checked the satellite imaging. They sent teams there to actually go in and uh, look on the ground. But uh, apparently from the documents that I read, they never found anything. And um, can you talk about like, uh, well, I mean, one of the interesting things I think you confirmed in your researches was did Lincoln, was Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln bisexual? Yes, yes. I, uh, oh, years, years ago, uh, way back, I started, I saw some diaries from about that time frame people wrote that had some access to the White House and people around Lincoln. And they were, they weren't coming out and saying that he's gay. They just didn't do that back then, but they would kind of allude to it. And so I kept digging and digging, and I came across the uh, a book written by a lieutenant colonel. And uh, at the time, they were in charge of security for Washington, D.C. during the Civil War. And there's a young uh, officer who Lincoln took a liking to. And the way they phrase it, you know, he, he, you read more into it. And uh, when Mary Lincoln would leave, go out of town, Abraham Lincoln would invite this young officer over to the summer house. Now, the summer house was down at the Naval Yard. It had, it was a big, it was a huge mansion, like 16 bedrooms and so forth. So he would invite him there to have dinner with him and then to spend the night. And in the diary of this guy in this book that he wrote, he talks about how this young captain and Lincoln were very close and how he would wear Lincoln's bed shirt to bed and they would sleep in the same bed. Now, and, you know, you, you go back then, a lot of people slept in the same bed, but not when you have 16 bedrooms and you're the president. Uh, if they lived out on a farm or something, they had one bed and had three kids, okay, they all slept together. Uh, but in this situation, it reads more into it than people realize. And then I went back and read some of the letters that Lincoln wrote at the time, even before he was president, to some of the men that were in his life that he knew, he was very close with. And when you read them, it reads like a love letter in a lot of areas. You say, wait a minute, is he writing to a woman? Or is this a woman writing to this man? But no, it's Abraham Lincoln writing to these different guys. And uh, when you start seeing that, um, it starts to get you thinking, so wait a minute, maybe there's more to Abraham than people know, in which 
hey, he was he turned out to be a good president and everything. He had uh, a very difficult position at the time, the Civil War, but um, it's just a part of history that uh, people should be aware of. Yeah, I mean, you concluded that he had he was attracted to men too, and I think there were stories actually when he was in uh, Illinois of sharing a bed with another man when he was in his lawyer days, and that kind of people talked about that. But when you look at the all the context, you throw in the letters and the the statements of the documents that you have in your book. I think yes, uh, it, it's pretty. And part of it comes from that uh, when I was on LAPD, I worked vice for about eighteen months and arrested many many people for. Uh, sex crimes, lewd conduct, and that. And I would say 10% to 15% of the men that we arrested for having homosexual uh, or gay encounters in parks and so forth were married. And most of them had kids, and some were chiefs of police, attorneys, doctors, judges. Um, and everybody thought they were straight. And we would never guess it, but here we we caught them in the acts, and so we arrested them. And uh, so when you bring that into play and with a background and you start reading this and understanding it, uh, it starts looking very, very, very positive that he was bisexual. Right. Yeah. And then that, yeah, I mean, there's a whole nother stories about that. But yeah, there was this uh, when I grew up in Northern California, there was a sociological study of what uh, happens in some public bathrooms and it was a huge scandal because somebody was just studying for sociological reasons and followed them home and these guys were married with kids and stuff like that crazy stuff but uh, well, I'll tell you, there were many times when my partner and i we arrested uh a couple guys in a public restroom in a park that were engaged in sex and when we start taking them out and the guy says wait a minute what are you going to tell my wife and so what do you mean he says well my wife and kids are waiting in the car Wow. And oh. so we'd say, we're not going to tell them anything. We'll walk you over there and you can tell them anything you want. You know, we'll tell you wow. where you're going, where we're taking you and how to get you out and so forth. But it's up to you to tell wow. your wife and kids. Families in the car. Wow, that's crazy. And you have some really interesting. One document that I hadn't seen was kind of the earlier, uh, like, rise of Adolf Hitler. Like, they really uh, had their eye on him when from a very begin uh, earlier time, even before the putsch, I think. Is oh, yes. Um, early on, there was an intelligence officer over there. And when uh, Adolf Hitler, before he really became that well known and came to power, he was giving speeches and everything. And this intelligence officer uh, was pretty much a prophet. He foresaw what was going to happen. He says, we really have to keep our eye on this guy. Um, he's very convincing, basically, when he speaks and the way the situation is in Germany in the right now in the foreseeable future, we have to watch him. And uh, so that document is in there, the assessment of Hitler at the time, uh, well before he gained power. Right. And I mean, they said he had sympathizers, wealthy sympathizers and things like that. And you talk yeah. about the psychological, was it the Langer report, the mind of Adolf Hitler? He was not normal in his personal. No, yeah. no he was, um, he was probably uh, gay uh, from all the documents and what I read in the past from the Langer, the psychological analysis that was done on him by the CIA or the OSS at the time and so forth. And um, when he was trying to become an artist and he was in Austria, the people that he hung around with, the men were all gay. And so 
you're looking and say, well, wait a minute, okay, that's that's fine, but you know, 90% of the guys he, he hangs around with are gay. And uh, then there was this woman who, even when he became the Fuhrer, uh, he would see her, and he kind of viewed her, I guess, as a mother, in a sense. And she would scold him, and he would get down, as he put his head on her lap, she would pat him on the head and say, oh, you're a good boy and all this stuff. And so he was like a child in some areas um, and just very, very different. And he had, which is into some very bizarre sexual aspects of his life uh, involving his niece and some other people. Uh, and it's described in detail and under the situation. Now I won't get into the detail of what he was talking about and what they said, but um but his yeah, niece died and, under uh, suspicious circumstances. Supposedly, shot herself. But yeah, there women were, usually don't engage in that. Yeah, they don't. Yeah, they don't even like guns. That so. were around him that uh, mysteriously died of suicide by gunshots. Yeah, you know. So um, it, it talks about his his sex life and uh, also about his mental ability, how he was, whether he was stable or not. And it's just very interesting getting to the man's mind. Yeah, he was totally bizarre. And he even later in life, all of his bodyguards were gay. So if yeah. you look at like your pictures of him with his bodyguards, they look like male models. They're all really super fit, handsome looking men. Like it'll it'll trip out. And he, oh, I yeah. mean, yeah. yeah. Uh, which you wouldn't think it, but then his excuse was like, I'm saving myself for Germany. Germany's my big thing, you know. That's what I that's why I'm a you know that's why i don't have a wife or whatever but it was just a big reason. exactly exactly so he was uh he was very bizarre needless to say and uh ruthless you know just ruthless yeah and that report's very important it's a very interesting insight into hitler but what a lot of people don't know is it got distilled into 200 pages but there's an additional thousand pages of notes and information that they had to look through to compile the Langer Report of the Mind of Adolf Hitler, which was exactly. an OSS, yeah. It was actually, yeah, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say, it was put together by Wild Bill Donovan, who was the head of the OSS at the time. He right. and instructed I, those guys to do it. I published that entire document, too. Oh, wow. No, and that's that really important history. Um, we're at the 30-minute mark. Do you mind talking about the second volume? We talked in the pre-show about some of the other documents you've been working on. Can you talk about what else people could expect in volume two? Well, yeah, in volume two, um, the one item that really stood out in my mind was uh, Hillary Clinton's emails. And most people remember, they go back and say, well, all her emails were destroyed, nobody could find them. Well, that's not true. Uh, I was able to obtain some. And I also have a document from the FBI stating that they have 340,000 of her emails that vanished. But they've never looked at them. That's what they claim. They've never looked at them, which is nonsense. Uh, and so the, the main thing is that the emails that I have in, in volume two has to do with going into Libya, the war that Obama launched against Libya and the true reasons behind it. Uh, it wasn't a concern over, well, there's... Um, an insurrection going on in some part of Libya and he's going to send in troops and they're going to slaughter people. That was kind of the excuse. It wasn't. Uh, Hillary pushed it and she went 
first she had a meeting with Sarkozy, the president of France, and he was very. He just dropped off. So again, that was volume two has a lot of additional, lots of additional stuff. All right, sorry, please continue. Please continue. Sorry. <laughs> and uh, anyway, what was uh, Sarkozy uh, knew that. Libya, Qaddafi was going to start a new currency for North Africa and that whole area. It was going to be backed by gold and silver. And that would impact the, the French franc dramatically. So <clears throat> Hillary went to France. She met with him. And he convinced her that this had to be stopped. And plus, it's in there about uh, regarding the oil reserves that Libya had, that France wanted their hands on that. And so the documents are the emails to Hillary in that... Uh, the war was launched for this reason, to stop the currency being backed in Libya and also to garner the oil riches from Libya to France. And what is interesting, the way it turned out and from some people I spoke to at the CIA is that Gaddafi sent, once the war started, he sent the gold, really about 120 tons of gold and silver into the desert in a convoy to be hidden, safeguarded. And so it was taken out, it was buried somewhere, and as these, these convoy trucks were returning empty, they were hit by French and U.S. aircraft and destroyed and everybody was killed. And so the official story today is that all that gold and silver is still out there somewhere and nobody knows where it's at. The French didn't take it, the U.S. didn't take it, Nobody took it. It's just, it's out in the desert, but nobody knows where it's at. Perfect. Well, to hit that convoy, obviously they had, you know, some spy aircraft overhead or a satellite watching it. They know exactly where everything went. Yeah, uh, sure. So I, I don't think that gold and silver is still there in the desert. I would agree with that. They probably knew everything. I mean, they're going in strong. The other thing, he was going to create a uh, gold-backed currency that everybody in Africa and North Africa, South Africa could use. So it was a com competitor to other currencies. Right. So it threatened them. So, you know, a lot of thought of those wars are central bank wars, believe it or not. Yes. A, lot of, <laughs> uh, a lot of interesting things. I mean, it's just, uh, there's so many documents that have been hidden from public knowledge. I think that I credit you with putting these together so people have a better understanding. And a lot of history is, you know, it's, bleached it's bleached out or stuff is taken out so you this gives you kind of an insight into top stop top stuff lee veltman asked if you knew sheriff lee baca while you were in a uh, office in l.a no, no no i i didn't know him but i knew about him <laughs> um, and baca really came in after i left lapd but uh i had several friends that were high ranking in the sheriff's department and under baca so yeah, he kind of had an insight what was going on. Yeah, was he? Is he in jail now, or did he go to? He went to jail, right? For, went, I, I think he's probably been released uh, because the last I heard that he was developing Alzheimer dementia, oh. something like that, and that he was being looked at for release. But I, I don't follow Lee, so I don't know if he's still in. But I, I think he's probably out. Yeah, I mean that's an interesting. I went to uh, I went to a ceremony where a policeman became a co LAPD cop and he was there officiating. And then, so I kind of, kind of followed that guys. I think what he did is he hid information. I think he hid important information if I remember correctly, but uh, is there anything else uh, in the volume two that you'd like to tell the audience about? 
Well, it's just that there's a lot of uh, other historical documents in there uh, that talk about the World War II and so forth. And uh, so it's all something that people, they probably heard the general story about, but they don't know the inside story. And the documents are there because when I was first putting together volume one, uh, I talked to a publisher and they said, well, God, you know, these stories are unbelievable. How are you going to prove them? I said, I have all the documents, you know? Right. So I said, I, ha I have to put them in the book because if you put a footnote, nobody reads footnotes and nobody would believe it. Um, because I have in there about, uh, you probably saw too about General Arturo Durazo, the chief of the federales that I was dealing with one-on-one -on -one when I was working at LAPD intelligence. And that took me, oh my goodness, uh, a big, I had a big battle with the FBI to try to get documents on him. Uh, Durazo, before he became commanding general federales, he was in their white brigade, which was an assassination team during the 60s. And so in uh, Mexico, they would uh, pick up dissidents and people they thought were communists, infiltrators. They would take them, interrogate them. Sometimes they'd just kill them on the spot. If they took them to camp number one, which is in Mexico City, they would take them there, interrogate them. When they had everything they needed out of them, they would take them in a helicopter, fly them over the mountains and throw them out. Right. while they were alive. And I got that directly from a couple of colonels and generals down there. Um, but it was Durazo, a dirty war, yeah, they called it the White War. White the dirty Sun. War, yeah, dirty war. the Dirty War in Mexico, and it was the White Brigade that did it. White Brigade, that's right. And in 76, uh, Durazo was indicted. Uh, he was the El Chapo of the time, cocaine smuggling from Mexico to the U.S. And he was a member of the White Brigade then, but in 76, he was indicted by a federal grand jury in Florida, and it was it remained sealed. Well, when I was working intelligence, I knew about that, and I was going down there to meet with him. Um, and so we went down to set up an intelligence network for the 84 Olympics, because nobody had any information coming out of Mexico. The FBI didn't, CIA didn't, but we had some that there was gonna be a terrorist attack there from some people in South America. So we met with him and some of his colonels in his office. And he, his first, it was pretty interesting, the first statement out of his mouth, as we said, you know, we're for LAPD intelligence, blah, blah, blah. And he said, no, 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 no. He says, you're, you are CIA. And I, I what? He says, no, don't tell me you're cops. You are CIA. I know you're CIA. Trust wasn't true. You know, we did work with them occasionally, but it wasn't that case. And so, he proceeded to open up and tell us things that he thought we knew. And he says, well, you know what I do for the CIA? And naturally we nodded and no, <laughs> you know, he says, well, he says, you know that I am your, basically the middleman between the CIA and the Contras in Nicaragua. And at that stage, we'd never heard of the Contras. And we just look at him he says, well, you know that I supply the, the landing strips throughout Mexico, dirt strips, clandestine airfields, for your aircraft to land when they're going to Nicaragua, I safeguard with my men, and then when they're coming back, flying back to the United States, I safeguard them, and your CIA says, you let me bring in my product back to your country, wow. meaning cocaine and drugs. 
And uh, the conversation went on. Uh, we knew some of the areas, but also he brought up areas where these flights would come in loaded with cocaine, U.S. military aircraft. Wow. And most of them were going to Southern California, some to Florida, but then to Southern Arizona. And they were going in there unloading because there's no custom checks. They go into a military base and that's right. it. Uh, so it's incredible. Yeah, he told us all about it and what he was doing. And uh, later, as I when I was at law enforcement, um, I realized that Durazo was hiding out in the United States after he left office. He was in La Jolla. I was living in La Jolla then, California, and I knew he was there. And some of these documents I found is that the CIA, the NSA, everybody, plus Mexican intelligence, <clears throat> they were looking for Durazo because he was assembling a mercenary team to assassinate the president of Mexico. Wow. <clears throat> and the reason being is the president of Mexico then was looking to indict him for all his past crimes because they knew and we knew that he came to the United States with a billion dollars wow. from narcotics trafficking, kickbacks, bribes. His salary at the time was about 1500 bucks a month. And so that's a lot of money to accumulate. Right. And uh, they were looking for him desperately. The president of Mexico was terrified that he was going to be assassinated because Durazo had the contacts and the money to carry it out. He, in turn, personally called Ronald Reagan and said, listen, we need to find this guy. Will you help us? Because he's out to kill me. Reagan launches a worldwide search for him with the CIA, FBI, and everybody, and they can't find him. Can't find him. Well, he's in La Jolla. I knew he was in La Jolla the whole time. And uh, finally, what they do is they, they they have an informant in Los Angeles, the FBI. <coughs> Excuse me. It's getting dry here. And um, he knows where DeRazzo's at. And he tells them... Uh, Basically, Durazo's going to fly in from South America to Puerto Rico to enter the United States and hang out again. And the guy was paid a hundred. Well, he was supposed to get a hundred thousand dollar cash reward from the Mexican government, but they flew in with only fifty thousand cash, supposedly, and gave him fifty k at the FBI headquarters in Los Angeles. And so he told them when the flight was coming, it was going to be a Learjet coming in and uh, okay, terrific. He flies in, the FBI is waiting Puerto Rico. They arrest him, but not on the warrant that was issued for him for narcotics trafficking. They arrest him on the warrant from Mexico and they extradite him to Los Angeles. Well, the interesting part is when Durazo landed in Puerto Rico, waiting for him was his wife, his son, and my ex-partner from OCID from Ellington Intelligence. And so you kind of, wait a minute, what's going on here, right? And um, Durazo was eventually sent back to Mexico. However, the warrant on him was never served, the narcotics trafficking warrant for the U.S. Hmm. And the documents I finally received out of a long fight with the FBI and everybody, and it said that, well, basically the FBI, the CIA, uh, IRS, Secret Service, and a bunch of other in the State Department got together when Durazo was still in power. They removed that warrant from the lookout system and buried it. 
to never be served on. So that way he could come in, in and out of the United States and never be checked because as you know, and most people know that when you fly in from an international location, when you're talking to customs, the first thing they do is they check your name in the Outlook system to see if there's a warrant for you anywhere. Right. And wow. that was completely removed. And uh, after I filed FOIAs and mandatory declassification reviews with the Department of Justice, I would say, I want a copy of the warrant that was issued. They said, we don't know what you're talking about. So I have a contact in Mexico City. I contacted that person. A week later, I had a copy of the warrant you know, issued by wow. the United States. It's so, crazy. There's so know, much corruption like that that yeah, goes on. That's Yeah. Yeah, even up till this was about two, three years ago, uh, the U.S. government was still hiding it. Wow. Do you know where he is now? Oh, he's dead. He died in 2000. 2000. But gotcha. here it is. 15, 16, 17 years after he died, the U.S. is still, still hiding I see. the whole yeah. incident because it's too embarrassing. Wow. That's incredible. It's uh, That stuff, unfortunately, is still going on now. Yeah, it's oh, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is there anything you'd like to add? Anything I'd miss before we wrap this up? Um, no, just that if uh, if people believe they know a lot of secret stuff about the government, this will open your eyes even more. And if sure. I had a uh, a history professor uh, from USC call me, and he said, you know, I've been teaching this sort of stuff for twenty some odd years, and he said, you've opened my eyes. The things the government was doing that I never thought existed. And uh, then his question was, how did you get these documents? <laughs> no, they're all legit. And you've done excellent work. It's all the documents are in the books or this book for sure. So people can check that out. Where's the best place to get Secrets, Lies, and Deception? Probably Amazon. Amazon's mm -hmm. the best. Barnes & Noble, but go to Amazon. And do you have a website, Mike? You have a no, website. I don't. Oh, you don't. And so the best way to reach out to you... Do you have an email or just through your publisher? Uh, just through the publisher. Sure, okay. Correct. People want That's to reach out to Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time. Again, the title of this two-volume piece is Secrets, Lies, and Deception, and the author is Mike Rothmiller. Thanks so much for your time, Mike. You're welcome. Take care. Stay, all right, stay there.